From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Hello and happy Wednesday. Scott Schantz filling in for Jill Bennett and then here for the rest of the week as well. Thanks so much for being here. Uh, Great show lined up today. We're going to find out the latest about what's happening with all of the wildfires and uh, what we're doing to support people affected by wildfires. Uh, You may have heard me talking about it with Mike. We're going to talk about the possibility of an NBA team coming back to Vancouver. I'm totally speculating now. I don't want to get anybody's hopes up, but we should have this, right? We're going to get to that after 2 o'clock. And we're going to start the show talking about housing. My guest is a global strategist at MRB Partners. Philip Colmore joins the show. Thank you so much for being here, Philip. I really appreciate your time today. Oh, thank you very much for having me. Now, I need to ask you about this headline uh, that I read on Bloomberg this morning that just, I think it's like shocking, but also uh, like not surprising, that Canada is likely sitting on the largest housing bubble of all time. Yeah, it's it's uh, yeah, it's certainly a statement. Um, but it, but backing it up, that Canada does have a dramatic housing bubble. I've been analyzing housing bear, bubbles and bear markets or fallouts in the developed world over the past, you know, well, my, much of my career for twenty years. Um, but analyzing the ones that have occurred over forty years, and Canada does have a, a pretty significant housing bubble on its hands. Probably one of the most dramatic I've seen. Um, we do have house prices to disposable incomes off the chart. And what you really worry about when you're dealing with a housing bubble or housing excesses is a situation where you also have a credit bubble underneath it. So there's a tremendous amount of household sector debt in this country, um, and it's becoming increasingly difficult to finance it. Okay, let's start here. Can you t- explain, uh, I'll say even for me, because I understand the terms, and I think I have like a loose understanding, a loose knowledge of these type yes. of things, but what is a housing bubble and what is a credit bubble? Okay, yeah, and that's a good point. So house prices naturally go up with incomes, which is natural as people become more affluent. The two drivers of housing is, is do people have a job? Do they have good incomes? And where are interest rates? Those are the two predominant driving factors. So lower interest rates means you can afford a higher home. We all know you have more income. You can buy a bigger house as well or more expensive home. So there's a natural upward tendency to home prices anyway. Um, so that, that shouldn't be alarming. Where it becomes alarming is when home prices start to escalate well in advance of income growth. Um, and we did see that. We saw that for better part of 20 years. And that usually happens when you have something suppressing interest rates. So the other side of the equation, when you can borrow more because interest rates are very low. We had a few events that created that in Canada. Um, the first being that during the 2000s, for example, we had a commodity boom. And although that was really good for incomes in the country, what it meant is the currency went up and everything we import from the United States got cheaper because of that currency. So it allowed the Bank of, uh, Bank of Canada, because of low inflation, to stay easy for some time. The bigger issue, though, was after the housing bust in the United States occurred, because that was one of your biggest demand sources of the world, really, not just for Canada. Um, and Europe went down at the same time. And so what that did is it pushed down inflation. It kept inflation very low for a long period of time. It allowed the, meant those central banks had to be easy. But the Bank of Canada adopted it because if it didn't, the currency might have gone up and it worried about uh, something called the competitive currency appreciate or it, it fought to prevent to keep the currency competitive, if you will. 
And so, uh, so anyway, so we ended up inflating housing again. Um, the pandemic hit and, and unemployment rose, and that could have been the end of it. But we, we've given another shot of uh, monetary support and, and government or fiscal support at the same time. And so we now, unfortunately, we have house prices that have run way above incomes at this point. So that's what you call a housing bubble. Now, that's one thing, because that's on the balance sheet and mm-hmm. the housing bubble can deflate. Yeah. But when you have households taking on increasing amount of leverage or borrowing or mortgage rates, in order to finance that, and their debt levels are way above what their income levels are. That's called a, a credit bubble, um, so a debt bubble, if you will. And that's what makes it very dangerous. You start to see house prices fall, um, or they can't service that debt because mortgage rates go up, and that's what's really happening here. Um, then, it, then it can all start to collapse and turn into that vicious spiral that we saw in the United States in yeah. the aftermath of Right. And I mean, when you look at the numbers, there's there's no doubt that it's so scary. You know, like there was somebody on uh, the program before us with Mike Smith who was talking about how like to, to even be involved in the real estate market, a household income needs to be like 240 grand. It's it's ridiculous. Everybody knows right. it. No one is denying that it's totally out of control. But one of the responses that I continually hear, because I've been in, I mean, I think everybody does. We joke that it's like the thing you talk about at parties here. If like the conversation goes dry, you just bring up real estate because people love to talk about it. Yeah. But people have been talking about a bubble burst since like I bought my first home in 2010 and people warned me like, oh, you, you know, I paid like 300 grand for a two bedroom condo, which is like a steal. Right. And people said like, Oh dude, there's a bubble. You should wait. You should wait until the bubble pops. And in the 10 years since then, you know, there's everybody has sort of said like, look at all these silly folks who got out and the market has just kept growing. But so what do you say to those people who are just like, well, people, people have always been saying there's a bubble. That's all, that's all people love to say here. And it, it never seems to burst. Well, when I, I started my career in the early 2000s, it was the case in the United States as well. Everybody said home prices always go up, so you should buy, um, always go long, uh, get out of school and take on debt and buy a house. And, of course, that came back to haunt a lot of people. So that is usually the case towards the end. It's always that way. That being said, look, it, excesses can last and bubbles can last, I, whether it be a housing bubble particularly, but, but asset market bubbles. I've built a lot of my, my career and my research path on analyzing bubbles and bursting. They can last a long period of time until there's a sufficient catalyst to burst it. When you're dealing with housing, you're dealing with, with really our interest rates going up to a biting point. Um, that would be one catalyst. Or is employment giving way? And so in, in the problem is, is in Canada is it doesn't benefit like the United States does with 30-year fixed mortgages. So before the inflation spike, we had a tremendous amount of people shift over to variable um, rate mortgages. So they're feeling the bite already as interest rates went higher. Most mortgages were five years reset. Um, and so, you know, you get a couple of years in and you get, you know, 20%, so to speak, or so a year that have to reset. So, so they're feeling higher debt burdens. We're seeing that really off the chart now in terms of debt servicing ratios. Um, it's really expensive now in order to maintain it. So that's a sufficient catalyst. What's holding it in um, to a certain extent of the Canadian housing market is employment's still good. It's employment's good in most places of the world. Other pla- Canada's not alone in a housing bubble. Other places do have them um, outside of the United States. But employment conditions have been good. If we ever got into a recession where employment started to deteriorate, then that would be um, a, a real bleak outcome. So, so really, it comes down to the catalyst. What I was trying to articulate uh, earlier this week, I took the headlines, was that the resilience of the United States economy um, it's the flip side of the 2010s. So in the 2010s, it was weakness in the U.S. economy, which pushed down inflation, pushed down interest rates, and Canada piggybacked on the back of it. It didn't have the weakness or the problems of the U.S. in deleveraging um, or household sector problems, but it got low interest rate environment. 
And now, unfortunately, the U.S. is in great shape. The household sector is in good shape, and it's less interest rate sensitive. And so now there's a resilience in the U.S., which is pushing up bond yields, and it's helping drag up Canadian bond yields. So that resilience in the U.S. isn't shared by household balance sheets here in Canada. And so if bond yields start to keep going higher because of that resilience, and it pushes it up in Canada, too, then that could be the catalyst to burst this thing. Okay. So you're always looking for a catalyst. So how, just quickly before we're kind of t- getting tight on time, yeah. but how, how bad could it be? Like, let's say the bubble bursts, 10%, 25%, 50%. What can, like, give me a, an estimation of how bad this could be, say this bubble bursts, maybe between now and 2025 or 2026. Yeah, I think it's. I mean, I think it's pretty dramatic because we saw even in in uh, 2022 when interest rates went up on a national wide level, we saw house prices fall something like 10 percent. So there was a brief and it started to stabilize now, but that's just in the sh- the, the the first shock of the the system. So um, so yeah, I think you could you could see it easily a 25 percent haircut on house prices. It could be more. Um, what's gonna What's gonna offset that is unlike the United States, um, when you do have housing bear markets in places. Um, you, you, well, you do get lower interest rates, but in places that aren't holding a world reserve currency, you get a weaker currency. So, um, so the currency will probably, you know, Canadian dollar will fall quite sharply in that backdrop, helps to provide reflation. Of course, if you're a Canadian, your purchasing power on a global basis gets hit from that aspect too. So, um, so that could be a cushioner, um, allow foreigners to buy in, depends what politics suggest and whether we're willing to allow foreigners yeah. to buy into a cheaper, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, market or not. I mean, that's, that's the other debate. Right. Um, otherwise you could have a deeper like and prolonged follow. Like there's still demand, right? I mean, there, there's that, like we're still seeing houses come on and just get snapped up and at least here in Vancouver, we're seeing that. So, um, unfortunately we have to move, we have to, I have to let you go, Philip, but man, this is so interesting to me and also scary, but exciting and <laughs> nerve wracking. I mean, there's no question that we need a solution to housing and, uh, that the costs definitely need to come down. So we're going to follow it closely and uh, hopefully we'll get a chance to talk again. Philip Colmar, global strategist at MRB partners. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Scott Schantz filling in for Jill Bennett. Hope your Wednesday is off to a great start. And uh, we're joined now by Claire Newell with the latest on uh, travel in our country. She is the founder and CEO of Travel Best Bets. Always a great conversation with her. Thanks so much for being here, Claire. Oh, thanks for having me, Scott. And it's great to talk to you on a Wednesday instead of our regular Sunday morning segment. Yeah, it's fun to be able to be here sort of during the day and uh, get to sit in, you know, one of these big chairs that uh, our regular hosts (laughs) usually fill in on. And we get to talk twice this week. So that's kind of cool. So I'm I'm taken by this story that Flair is going to start training pilots from scratch because like, hey, career option, right? It is. You know, there has been a chronic industry-wide pilot shortage, not just here in Canada, but around the world. And I think this is fantastic news. They've announced that they're going to launch a new entry-level pilot training program. They're calling it Flair Airlines Cadet Program. And they're partnering with a company called Genesis Flight College, which is in Collingwood, Ontario. It's a private flight training college. And what they're hoping is that, well, the whole aim of it is to prepare pilots to become first officers on Boeing 737 MAX. Those are really popular aircraft and Flair has them, um, but within 18 months. So it's really great news. And it's the first of its kind. I haven't heard of any other carrier here in Canada doing this. And I think it is, it's much needed 
but I would hope that other airlines will follow suit because this is a great chance, not only for them to fill these positions for flair, um, but just get more pilots in the system. No question. And I love when uh, an industry sort of takes the responsibility for that. Like, hey, we need this. So we're going to offer um, a program and we're going to sort of like take the take the bull by the horns here, train our own people, pay them because like pilot has always struck me as uh, like a really great job. You know, <laughs> like you get yeah, to travel and, and it, like, yeah, there's tons of perks um, and it and usually is an expensive program. And hopefully there will be some sort of bursaries and scholarships for this program. Um, the reality is, is that the airlines um, have put together contracts and renewed contracts for their pilots not just here in Canada, but all over North America. And pilots are paid substantially more than they were pre-pandemic. And so it is a great option. But paying them more is not going to prevent the the great need and the, the, the sheer lack of pilots that is coming. Like we're talking about almost tens of thousands of pilots in Canada alone over the next five to 10 years. So really critical that we get this in place and that hopefully Flair isn't the only airline that starts to do this. Yeah. And like you say, really critical that we get more and more and more pilots because travel is continuing to increase, right? It's not going away. Like more and more people want, are going to want to travel. Yowzers, did you see the um, the it's kind of the third point in the notes I sent you yeah. um, about how global tourism is projected to reach $15.5 trillion um, by 2033. And that's a staggering number, well above what it was pre-pandemic. In fact, a lot of countries, 34 countries around the world are already covered so dramatically that economic activity now exceeds pre-pandemic levels of business. But the number of 15.5 trillion by 2033 is going to represent about 11.6% of the global economy. It's also going to employ about 430 million people by that year, 2033, which is about 12% of the planet's working population. So those are humongous numbers and yes, travels back. It, it was back the moment the restrictions came, came, came off uh, after the pandemic. And it's just, it's continuing to just rise, even though it's so expensive to travel at the moment. Yeah. And I can hear the excitement in your voice about like the industry <laughs> totally growing and just to sort of, uh, sort of frame some thinking around there. So 11.6% of the global economy and 12% of the planet's working population. So that's one in 10 people that you meet, think about it this way, greater than one in 10 people that you meet work in tourism, like in that one industry, whether it's air travel or travel or hospitality for people to like, that's insane of the amount of yeah. industries that we have 10% of it. And it's for good reason because the world is a wonderful place. And this is why people like us love travel and going and seeing and exploring. And cause we talked on Sunday about that, there was that story that young people would rather spend money on travel than on like groceries because like essentials. Yeah. yeah. Like essential because traveling, it just has this thing. And I think there's this attitude sort of post COVID that it was like, Hey, and something could happen, you know, tomorrow or next year or whenever that 
means we can't travel and you never know what the future holds. So this whole idea of maybe I'll go to Europe one day or maybe I'll, you know, do this in this part of the world. I'd really love to see that before. You know, like I'd love to see the Galapagos Islands before, you know, it doesn't exist anymore. Like nothing is promised. And so people are like, we got to get out there and do this. And I love that. It makes the world feel like more connected. People come back with this great education, you know, this world education that you can't get anywhere else. This is, I think it's awesome. Yeah, I, I'm 100% with you. Um, there was actually some numbers that came out of uh, the, the states. It always is quite similar to Canada, so that's why I share some of the stats. But um, AAA was looking at this upcoming Labor Day holiday weekend, and the numbers, again, for that was so crazy. Um, the top domestic destinations for Americans at the moment, close to home, Seattle was number one, hmm. Orlando uh, Anchorage, Alaska, huge number of people do um, Alaska cruises over the summer months, um, including Labor Day long weekend, New York, uh, Vegas. So um, the other thing was, and I think, that, sorry, I should mention that Seattle is usually on that list with Anchorage because a lot of the cruises, that's the, the point where they embark right. and disembark, not just here in Vancouver. So um, the other thing, the other number that were quite staggering, international hotel bookings for Americans over the holiday are up 82% compared to last year. International cruise bookings are up 40 per, 44% <sighs> yeah. over last year. So the numbers of people traveling, it's just, it's huge. And when Americans travel, they travel like in droves. They're going to like a lot of the common places. They don't tend to go off the beaten path as much as Canadians do or Germans or Australians. Um, but, you know, they, they make up some big numbers, that's for sure. Yeah. Now, I want to ask you about something, Claire, that we were talking about again on Sunday. And I thought it would be you would be the right person to ask about this. Because uh, you and I sort of talked about how there were people flying out of uh, Northwest Territories. And um, some of the flights ended up being a lot more expensive than or perceived to be a lot more expensive than they were because of third-party booking. You remember we were having that sort yes. of conversation? So yes. I talked with uh, the head of the BC Hotel Association earlier this week about sort of similar things happening or potentially happening around um, hotels. So can you kind of speak to that at all? I thought the way that you sort of explained that, how like, yeah, they're not just jacking prices because they know that people are in. uh, uh, There was a lot of that on social media, right? It was like, hey, we're we're going from Kelowna to Abbotsford and every hotel is up. The gas prices are up. It's uh, like they're totally taking advantage of this. But that's not what's happening, right? Right. And um, for those listening who might um, not understand the context of what we're talking about is that on social media, when Yellowknife um, residents were being evacuated, there was very quickly posts on social media saying this is insane, like uh, the, the Canadian airlines are just gouging. But in reality, the both of the, the Canadian airlines actually put on extra flights. They capped the amount of um the, the, the cost so that everything was in check, but it does take time. And what people were sharing was often aggregated fares by websites, which are not um, in line with what's offered directly with the airlines. So some of them had multiple stops and wasn't just with one carrier, one Canadian carrier. Um, the, you know, the, the nonstop Yellowknife Calgary, for example, is two hours. And some of the um, trips that were shared were 21 hours. I mean, they weren't even with all sorts of stops and, and other carriers. So um, they have they they really have been trying, and they did this with Maui. They're doing this with 
Kelowna. They're doing this with Yellowknife. When it's safe to fly, smoke is down. They will put on extra flights if needed, um, whenever they can. They'll actually change out the aircraft if they have that within their capacity and get more people out on larger aircraft than the one that they maybe had planned. It may have been a much smaller flight um, and, and they switch it out to, you know, like a 737 where it's 169 seats. Um, they'll double the frequency. They did that for Yellowknife on certain days. So, um, and it's the same with hotels. They often don't they can't change their policies and things in the system like in a on a moment's notice it goes through some layers but they will do it when they can and when you first call you might get no cancellation policy you know it's non-refundable non-transferable non-changeable but within maybe just a couple of hours they will put their policies up up to date on their website and then there you will see more relaxed um options for people to change without fees and all of that it just takes time and it's not just for airlines like i say it's for hotels even um in hawaii they it was vrbo and airbnb relaxed their policies which they're not known to do so they will come to the table in most cases. Yeah, just and like this whole idea that companies in a in an emergency or in a tragedy try to, you know, boost prices that's you know it's just that's not what's happening despite what you might see on social media so i was i thought the way that you explained it was great and i was glad to sort of hear that even just in the context of you know a local a local story um there's another story that's kind of gone viral i saw it on reddit this morning that i wanted to ask you about because this is my greatest fear you might have seen this the tiktok video has like 2.3 million views about some people who flew united and got stuck in the plane Uh, The plane had left the gate but didn't take off and they were stuck for seven hours on the plane with no food and no water. And then they go back to the gate and let a bunch of people off, but they thought they would take off. So it was like, you can stay on the plane if the plane is going to take off. They taxied back out onto the runway and sat there for another hour and ended up losing a day. And this this is like my greatest nightmare is being stuck on a plane that is stuck on the ground. Yeah, I didn't see that one. I often see these. Um, I worry. I, I'm not sure what the context was of the the delay, whether it was mechanical on the aircraft or whether it was um, weather related. Obviously, you don't want to go if there if it's weather related sure, yeah. and there's some sort of situation. Um, and that flight, I'm not sure where it was going. I mean, there's been an, um, some inclement weather down the Pacific coast in the Baja, and if it was going in that area, you wouldn't yeah, have wanted it to was, land. It was going to Rome this one. Okay. Okay. Well, hopefully um, there'll be some sort of compensation because that shouldn't happen. That's why we have the passenger bill of rights both here in Canada and in the U.S. That's that's what I'm wondering. Like there is a law that you can't be kept on a plane for a certain number of hours without food. And like, is there or what, what happens in those scenarios? Well, here in Canada, we had that type of situation over um, winter, which was really awful. You know, there were people on the on the aircraft for way too long because of snow and not being able to have it cleared. The normally the airlines and the airports involved will decide what occurred and and how to solve it. But there there is a a rule here in Canada that you can't do that. You ha- there has to be food and water. They won't um, leave you on the tarmac for any longer than you know, X number of hours before you go back to the the gate and get off. Um, but there, this, I, I would guess there'll be some sort of compensation for these people, seven hours and then going back to the gate and then another hour on the, on the tarmac. It just sounds hellish. Yeah, I, absolutely. I to say that. Oh, you, <laughs> like, definitely. Okay. 
Okay. Definitely. <laughs> you know, and like I have young kids. I know you have kids. Like any, t- just it's like, oh my gosh, I would, you know, you have these ideas. It's like, I just couldn't take it. I'm claustrophobic. It's like, this is my worst, worst nightmare. Yeah. So, oh, you know, yeah. I'm lucky that it's, I've never been super duper delayed like that, but gosh, that seems scary. Okay. So on yeah. Sunday we were talking about maybe a quick trip to Vegas. Where else? Like let's talk local or, you know, cheap. Where If people are looking for a quick getaway end of summer or maybe before Christmas, where should we go? Well, I have two deals. One of them that I think is just incredible for the itinerary. I told everyone I know who's close to me, if you want to do this, it's a 10-night British Isles cruise that visits England, Scotland, and Ireland on October the 13th. Now, I actually choose to go late September, early October when I go to Europe, and I'm actually going to Ireland at the tail end of September. So I'm, I will you know, be, this is the kind of time of the year that I like to go. It has a fantastic itinerary. The 10 night cruise round trip London, which is nice. You can go in and out on the nonstop. $5.99. The taxes are almost the same. $5.09. But that is a steal. If you've ever been looking for hotels in London, you'll know that, you know, it's at least a couple of hundred dollars and that would just be like mid grade. Yeah. So it's a really good buy because it includes your accommodation and your entertainment and, and, um, your meals when you're on board, you will have to add air to that. The other one that I think is really early for this to go on sale is the Riviera Maya for a like swanky hotel. This is leaving January the 8th to March 7th, and it includes the airfare and seven nights in a four and a half star beachfront all inclusive resort for $14.99, the tax of $401. Um, that is way cheaper than it normally is at this time to be booking. And these is, these are Barcelo properties for those who know it. All of them are four and a half star and you can book to stay in one, but use four of them. So there is the Barcelo Maya Tropical, Barcelo Beach, Carib or Colonial, whichever one you like. Um, and then you, you, you can, uh, play at them all and eat at them all. Wow. These are incredible. I'm looking at pictures of it right now that both of those seem really, really cheap. And so you can find those on your website, travel best bets. Is it .ca or .com? Sorry. It's .com. Travelbestbets.com. Okay. Fantastic. Claire Newell, she's the president and CEO of travel best bets. Always fantastic to talk. Uh, thank you so much. And, uh, we'll talk again on Sunday. Sounds great. Thanks Scott. Good afternoon, Scott Schantz filling in for Jill Bennett. And do you feel like there is an something in the air around social media? A lot of people talk about how uh, bad it is and all of the negative things that it has done for our community or maybe for our children's community and for our brains and the way that our society functions and stuff. You know, like we doom scroll and we there's like online bullying and, you know, uh, misinformation, so, so many things wrapped up in this idea of of social media and the damage that it can do. But it's not always like that, or maybe at least it doesn't have to be. Uh, Please welcome, or I'm pleased to welcome, excuse me, my guest, Shelley Craig. She is a professor from the University of Toronto and uh, works in social work and all sorts of things. And she uh, works with uh, gender minority youth and talks uh, in a much more positive way about social media. Is that right, Shelley? You seem to have a much more positive spin on this stuff, don't you? Yes. And I want to note that what you're saying is true and it's not a dichotomy. Right. Right. So both can, in fact, exist. 
there is a reason we are all on social, many of us are on social media, and there is a reason that adolescents are also on social media, and queer adolescents specifically, right? So I think that it's just important to take into consideration that there is sort of nuance. And you are right, the sort of what I what I label have labeled the fear rhetoric, right, which is around social media, which is essentially that it's all harmful, particularly to adolescents. It's applied more to adolescents than any other population, which I think is interesting. But um, the fear rhetoric in many ways is really easy for us to understand and comprehend, right? And that's mm -hmm. a lot of where the research is. It's primarily on cyberbullying, and it's much easier to embrace. But I feel like it's, based on my research, it's an example of essentially what is like our homophobic and transphobic society because it invisibilizes um, the experiences. It really erases the experiences of LGBT youth. What I'm finding, so what I found, so it was a little over a decade ago that I started to get really interested in social media as I was working specifically with LGBT youth to us LGBTQ youth, of course, depending on where you are, there are different ac acronyms, sure. as you know. Yeah. And, and what I was seeing specifically was that um, they, LGBT youth were using it pretty extensively. So a lot of the kids that I was working with were using it extensively. And despite the poor mental health that many of them have, our statistics are similar, over a third commit suicide. They're similar to what they were 10 years ago, even 15, 20 years ago. A lot of LGBT youth actually were, um, in, even though they were encountering all of these negative experiences, off, like, like families rejecting them, often negative media portrayals, they didn't always seem to have poor mental health. And, and there was an, there's an absence of competent, supportive mental health professionals, and they weren't accessing it. So it's like something is happening here, and that's when I got into social media, and I started to understand social media for our queer young people was providing very different experiences and benefits than what we were seeing reflected in kind of this fear rhetoric around social media, which was present 10 years ago and is still present, right? And so... So what I found, which, which for me was actually surprising, so LGBT youth consistently feel safer, and this is still true, online than offline, hmm. even in the cities, even in Toronto. I'm in downtown Toronto. So that, to me, honestly, Scott, that was shocking. I thought, well, that's interesting. I would have thought, like, maybe in the country. Right? Yeah. Um, and so, so that was the first question that I had, like, what broadly are the experiences? So then I was like, okay, I need to understand this a little bit more. And so what we have from, I, so now I've done a lot of research on this, and LGBT youth have talked about social media being their home, their family. It's kept them alive. It's built their resilience. It's given them hope. Um, and it's, so the benefits are quite astounding. And, and essentially what they are saying is that, it's really been a place that they can, um, you know, some of them even credit social media with, with the, their connections on social media, not social media itself. Sure. Their connections on social media as saving their lives. And wow. so I think that's yeah. interesting. 
right? <laughs> it's, a, it's really amazing. And it's personally, I find it really refreshing to hear social media cast in this light. Because like you say, uh, you know, I acknowledge too that it's a two-sided thing or, or multifaceted thing, you know, how social media right. interacts with society. But let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater here. There, there really can be and in fact is um, a lot of good that is that is happening there. And before we go any further, I just you said something that sure. totally caught me off guard. I just need to circle back on this. Did you did yeah. you say that one in three LGBTQ LGBTQ youth or adolescents commit suicide? Have attempted. Have attempted suicide. suicide. Attempt. How yeah. how are so, we not talking about that more? That number seems insane to me. I know, I know. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. And, there, and I want to be clear, there is great work happening across the country. And it is still, I mean, adolescent mental health has gotten worse over the past 10 years. And I think it's a combination of us, of adolescents being able to talk about it more and more of a di- dialogue around mental health, particularly since the pandemic, but also the stressors on LGBT youth and the lack of hope that they feel are what's really contributing to their poor mental health, right? So wow. it's a, it's, it's really, it's a, it's, so that's why as a social worker, I'm still involved in this. And I'm thinking, if this is something that is providing benefits to young people, I think we need to figure it out and figure out how to integrate that into our work with them, into our parenting. Yeah, that's, them. okay, so let's, let's right? go, let's go there. To, yeah, to sure. like, let's talk about parenting. Like, I have two. I have a sure. six-year-old and a two-year-old, um, and you know, the six-year-old is already uh, like, let's get the get me a phone. You know, that's what I want. Right? How, how do we do that? How do we integrate social media in a healthy way as parents? Well, I think there's there's a few different strategies that sometimes we talk about. And first, we want to recognize that it it is challenging, right? It's particularly challenging to talk young people about social media it's almost like the conversation that you might have you know with your adolescent young person about sex right it's really hard for parents to do so i just want to recognize that that is not easy but i think there's one like i think a couple of things often come to mind but thinking critically right so not embracing this kind of fear rhetoric um and really ignores for my population ignores the experiences of queer youth but also like Questioning, I think something that's important is questioning our assumptions about social media, right? Because we may have seen, you know, a news article about it that's usually mapped onto this fear rhetoric, right? Mm -hmm. Or something that is, that makes us nervous because we want to protect our children, of course, right? But social media doesn't create, but really reflects what is happening in our society. It's what already exists, right? So it's really important to be able to, I think, Talk to your child about social media use. Like you can talk about your own use and maybe share that with them. So it's, you know, so it's a, so it's a, it's a conversation. But starting to talk about that instead of like a lot of parents, understandably, take the phone away because it's the piece, it's the thing that seems most important to our young people. Right. But for particularly for our queer young people, I will say, because that's the population I know the best. It it can be a critical connection, right? It could be life saving. So wow. we don't necessarily want to do that. Can we be curious and really talk to our child or a young person about, okay, tell me what's interesting 
to you about this. You know, what is it that you're looking on at social media? Help me learn, right? I'll make jokes about being older, right? Totally. <laughs> like, yep. Show show me what's show me what's interesting now. And it can actually strengthen the relationship because you understand your child a little bit more. But then they're more likely to kind of keep that line of communication open because you're not approaching it in this sort of dichotomous all or nothing way. You you can say, "Hey, I'm worried. I hear all these things about social media." And just starting to have that conversation with them so that they feel like because you've laid the groundwork for them to talk to you about social media in a way that isn't going to hopefully um, mean that, you know, you're taking the phone away or, or whatever. Obviously, parents have to make important decisions, but so that they can come and discuss things with you. Right. So that yeah. I think is pretty important that 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 communication, I think, is key. And I recognize that it's hard. But it can also, I've seen it strengthen parenting relationships. Welcome back to the Jill Bennett Show. Scott Schantz filling in and uh, a little bit of Space Jam throwback there from uh, our producer, Tim French. The original Space Jam with MJ, by the way, not the LeBron remake. MJ forever better than LeBron. Just saying. Uh, we're talking about basketball with my guest, Rob Williams from Daily Hive. He's their sports guy. How are you doing this morning, Rob? I'm doing great, Scott. How are you? I'm great. MJ or LeBron? Let's just get that out of the way. Oh, yeah. Michael Jordan. Yeah, for sure. For, for sure. Okay, so the reason I wanted to chat with you is because uh, this morning the pre-sale started for the Toronto Raptors exhibition game happening at Rogers Arena here in Vancouver in October. That's this year. Now, they've done this in the past. 2018 was the last time. I went to one of those games, and it was amazing. Uh, the pre-sale here has sold out. The rest of the next block of tickets goes on sale uh, in two days. But already, tickets for this exhibition game are like reselling on StubHub for like, I'm looking right now, like 1300 2700 3200 Like the It's clear that the market is here. Why don't we have an NBA team? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Various reasons. I do, I do, I, I would say for like the resale tickets, like you know, take that with a little bit of a grain of salt. Sure, yeah. Uh, you know, like, we'll see the true value, I think, of, of what they're going to go for uh, closer to October 8 when um, when the Raptors take on the Sacramento Kings. But with that said, like, you're right. Like, I, I was at the last uh, the last visit of the uh, Toronto Raptors in 2018 when they, when they played uh, the Portland Trailblazers at Rogers Arena. And at that time, like the Raptors had made multiple visits uh, to town. They had not yet won the NBA championship. That was Kawhi Leonard's first ever game was actually in a Raptors uniform was actually in Vancouver. But I was so struck by the enthusiasm of the crowd. And it wasn't just like a general basketball crowd. Like these were clearly Raptors fans. Like these are yeah. clearly people that follow the team. They're not just here for the event just because there's, oh, there's a basketball game. It's something uh, different to do. Like these were real basketball fans, and and yeah, I, I and I agree. Like like there is a market for it here. Um, the NBA though, that that's the, the trouble with it though is it's 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 such big business now, right? And, and I wonder if if just the cost to get a team now is just too high. Um, I know Francesco Aquilini, the owner of the Canucks, was looking into buying an NBA team or getting a team to relocate to Vancouver. Uh, he said a few years ago in 2018 that, uh, you know, when he was looking, it was around $300 million and now it's up to $2 billion and that was too much for him. And, you know, the, the Phoenix Suns 
just sold for four million or four billion dollars. Yeah, I mean, when <laughs> so that gives you an idea of how much it's going to cost. So, I, if if there was an owner that had the money for it, uh, they could they could bring a team here, then great. But but that's that's really the biggest stumbling block. Yeah, I, when you mentioned that first number, three hundred million, I was like, oh my gosh, that seems seems cheap. Like not cheap <laughs> in in the real world of of cheap versus expensive. But yeah, I, I'm aware that these franchises are going for like multiple billions of dollars, but. If there was like an investment group, like we often see taking ownership of these teams right now, like you have to think that long term, like we're a city that could support uh, a team like that, right? Yeah, I, th- I think it's the, I think it's open for debate. I, I would love nothing more than to see a, an NBA team come back to Vancouver. I you know I was I was in high school when the Grizzlies were mm-hmm. here, and and it was a fun time. Even with a terrible team, it was still it was still fun. I'd love to see it uh, come back. The, the trouble is, if you if, now if you look at other teams, I, th- I think the way to, to do the comparison is to look at similar sized cities to Vancouver that have both an NBA team and an NHL team because okay. they play so many games, 82 games in each league, so that's 41 home games in in each league. You know how many how many cities of of similar size to Vancouver have both and and are successful. There are some, but there, but there's not a ton. So I don't. I wouldn't say that it's, it's, it's a you know a slam a slam dunk. Right. Yeah. But, but I think it, it's open for discussion, certainly. Yeah. So maybe let's talk about the Grizzlies because anytime this comes up, of course people talk about the Grizzlies. Like at this game in October, yep. of course there's going to be people there wearing Grizzlies gear and talking about the Grizzlies and stuff. Like there always is. Why didn't that? work and we're so like at least i am anecdotally convinced that it would work now and we see this yeah. kind of you know hype around the the raptors and stuff why did why didn't we have that when the grizzlies were here oh so i mean how much time have you got <laughs> about four minutes yeah, yeah i mean there's, there's so many reasons uh you know it, it began with the canadian dollar where it was a you know a, a, a very a low canadian dollar compared to the american dollar at the time which you know the the Grizzlies were taking in money in Canadian dollars and paying money in American dollars, so that hurt them right off the off the get go. They were poorly managed; had you know they didn't draft well. They also had had um, less money to spend on the salary cap to, when they entered the league. They weren't able, along with the Raptors, were not able to get uh, the top draft pick their first few years. So they were they were behind the eight ball in, in a number of in a number of areas. But uh, yeah, like so, like what you know. With that experience behind them, you know, if you had a team that was that was managed well, um, you know, there certainly would be a honeymoon period where people would come out and support, uh, you know, a, a new NBA team in Vancouver. So I think you, I think it would be. I, I mean, I would love to see it. Wouldn't, wouldn't you love to see it? I and mean, there's so much oh my money gosh. in Vancouver now too, and Vancouver's grown since then. So I think there's there's certainly arguments to be made. Um, you know, in favor of, of Vancouver getting, you know, getting another shot at the NBA. And, and with that being said, like whenever the discussion of expansion teams comes up, like Vancouver, they're not at, top, at the top of the list, like Seattle, Las Vegas. Uh, but, you know, they were kind of in the mix with, with the, you know, about five other cities that kind of get talked about as a potential NBA land. Yeah, yeah. And I just, I think that it's like another exciting thing. It's cool to see, you know, like when I went, the game that I went to was against um, uh, Golden State and, you know, I saw mm-hmm. Steph Curry. I'm like, this is like, this is so cool. And I think that mm-hmm. there's a, like, there's more um, appetite for it now than there certainly was. But okay, so I, I just while we have a couple minutes left, you mentioned Seattle, you know, who recently got an NHL team, they're bigger than yep. than Vancouver. When they had the Sonics, everybody here 
year was a fan of the Sonic. If you weren't a Grizzlies fan, you know, at the time, yep. like, what are the chances that we'll get some, um, at least some, you know, a lot of people go down there for NFL games to watch a major league game. What are the chances that we'll be going down there to watch an NBA game if we're not going to get a team here? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I think it'll be really interesting to see what, you know, if, if and when. I think it's probably more a matter of when, not if, Seattle gets a, an NBA team back. I think there'll be lots of people in Vancouver that uh, end up cheering for that team as they had cheered for the Sonics in the past. And I think that there's going to be a lot of Raptors fans that go down for those games and it might not be uh, too too dissimilar to uh, to when the Blue Jays visit Seattle and you, and you see that invasion of, of Canadian fans uh to see to see them play the Mariners, which are always the best Mariners games to go to. Like you can get tickets to like any other game except when the Blue Jays are there. It's nuts, you know. Okay, well I guess that's that. Uh, but we will, you know, we'll keep an eye on it. We'll keep an eye on it. I'm still, you know, I'm going to try to get tickets to this Raptors game in a couple of days here when they when they go on sale. The Raptors set to play the Sacramento Kings at Rogers Arena. It's preseason, but it's still it's super exciting. It's cool to go into Rogers Arena and see the wood floor out. Uh, Rob Williams from the Daily Hive, thanks so much for being on and talking a little basketball with us today. You bet. Keep banging the drum for the NBA. I'll be there to buy tickets if they come back. Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till 3 on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.